or will you preach? This is Hell. Thank you for tuning in to This is Hell on Wednesday, May 4th, live, recording and live streaming at the same time, from Rogers Park, Chicago, West Ridge. Still don't know the address. I am Lindsay, and I am running the soundboard today in replacement of our typical live shows every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday with our host Chuck Mertz. But if you've been following us the last couple weeks, you may be aware that Chuck has been out sick. But I think I have some of the best news to read on air so far. And this is a message straight from Chuck last night. Your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed host Chuck Mertz returns this Friday, May 6th, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell with breaking news and a new monologue. Not only will Chuck have an exclusive episode, an exclusive update on this year's This Is Hell anniversary party and art show, This Is Art, but he will also be talking drugs. Drugs he was given during his hospitalization for emergency life-saving surgery, and drugs he was not, including some he's never even tried. But that won't stop Chuck from sharing his ill-informed opinion. To hear the breaking news about this year's party and Chuck Talk Drugs, listen to Friday's This Is Hell live streaming and podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing Chuck's ill-informed opinion. Because it sounds like he's got some first-hand experience with being ill. So, it's probably some good stuff. And also, it makes me think about, you know, the past couple days. This is a, we are live streaming here and we are living now in America where there has been a leak from the Supreme Court that they're going to overturn Roe v. Wade and... Um, you know, take away federal protections of safe and legal abortions. I mean, I guess I might want to share that I am a female person with a uterus in my reproductive prime, I think. Um, and I choose to not take birth control, so it's a, <laughs> you know, it's a little scary. Although I would say I don't think my circumstance cha- will change very much because I haven't had healthcare since November, and you know I probably could get it if I tried hard enough. But there are a number of reasons why I don't really feel like I need to right away. Um, and one is that I personally use plants for most of my healthcare needs, which I know is not normal. Um, But, you know, birth control has all sorts of side effects, you know, the one that you have to take it every day if it's a pill. Or you can get, like, 
a piece of metal like shoved into your uterus to keep in there forever. And you know, they might be 99% effective, but I'm wondering about the small percentage of women who get pregnant with an IUD inside of them. Doesn't sound so good. So, you know, I guess I just wanted to uh, share from my, you know, one of the reasons why people really start to freak out about uh, not having Roe v. Wade is because it's supposed to keep women safe by giving them access to safe abortions with a medical provider, an expert. But, you know, I think maybe next week we can go into a little bit more detail on uh, I, I want to do a lot more research on these uh, abortion pills. That's my my response to this. I don't know. I don't trust my legislatures. I don't trust the Supreme Court. I don't know. I just want to know what I can know and what I can do. And I think they don't teach us very much about, you know, how to avoid pregnancy um, in terms of, like, how does the body actually get pregnant? And I'd also like to say it's just kind of, you know, ironic to get this news while you're PMSing, you know. It's terrible to have to menstruate in order to, you know, the human race to continue on. I have a degree in sociology, so I asked my twin who has a degree in biochemistry about why humans menstruate, but it still doesn't, still doesn't make much sense to me. But, you know, I guess I have to be grateful for the PMS because it means I'm not pregnant. So <laughs> we can, uh, you know, wait again for next month to make sure that I don't have to, you know, try and get an abortion and try and find these abortion pills that cost like hundreds of dollars. Um, but yeah, so my natural response was to like look up what plants, what plants can I use? Cause um, that's part of, that's part of my strategy of avoiding abortion. So I have a couple things written down on how to avoid abortions if you don't have access to medical care. One of them is lesbianism. It's not foolproof because in this day and age, women can have penises, so, you know, but, uh, you know, I think sometimes it can work. Celibacy is another one. I think it's underrated. I mean, I don't think you can use it forever, but sometimes you need a detox, right? And then the other thing on my list is birth control. So yeah, no, I don't really use conventional birth control, but there are herbal options and nobody really talks about these because it's like we think women can't like figure out <laughs> if something they put in their body is bad for it. You know, so I'm only going to talk about what I have personal experience with, which is using wild carrot seed as a, it's basically an herbal plan B pill, plant B as I like to call it. Um, it's been used for a long time. I don't even know how long, much longer than birth control created by doctors has existed. But um, yeah, basically wild carrot seed, um, it grows all over the place. Uh, it's also called Queen Anne's Lace. You have to be careful if you're not good at identifying plants because it looks a lot like poison hemlock. So look it up. <laughs> I'm only here to provide information. Um, not telling you to go out and do anything, but yeah, like it's 
easier to find and you know what you're getting. Whereas like if you want to buy like miso pro stole off like the black market or something, you don't really, unless you can do spectronomy, like how do you know what that white powder really is? <laughs> but you can tell pretty well like what a plant is if you try hard enough. And yeah, I, like I said, I've had personal experience with it. You take it, you eat the seeds um, or take it in an extract after you you know, have sex where you might potentially become pregnant. And it, I mean, I don't really know what it does scientifically, but I can tell you I, can, I could feel it. It did something. It does something to your uterus. But basically what all, of, all these abortificants do um, is they block progesterone in some way and make the uterus inhibitable to a fertilized egg. So that's basically what it does. I think it changes the mucus so that like a, an egg cannot implant. So that's like, it's not an abortion. It just, you never, you never get pregnant. So anyways, but anyway, this stuff is really controversial. <sighs> Google herbal abortion. You're going to find a bunch of stuff from research on poison control centers. And I would just like to say that research is a little biased, you know, and because it's so taboo. How many people do you know? If you know anybody, I don't know, find me on social media, DM me if you know anybody who has personal experience with herbal abortions because I'm interested. Anyways, without further ado, I want to introduce this next, uh, my, the guest that I'm going to replay. Um, so this interview was recorded about five years ago now, in 2017. Um, and I have to try and figure out, make sure I can play this all the way through because I can't figure out how to download it, but you can find it on our SoundCloud. It is an interview with writer Jessica, or sorry, Jessa Crispin, called Feminism's Promise is Not a Place Within Capitalism. It's a place beyond it. So, uh, let's see. I have here Jessa Crispin's website, because I'd like to introduce a little bit here. Jessa Crispin is the founder and editor of the magazines Bookslot.com and Spolia. Sorry if that's not how you say that. She is the author of The Dead Ladies Project, published by the University of Chicago Press, The Creative Tarot, published by Touchstone, and Why I'm Not a Feminist, a Feminist Manifesto. She has written for many publications, some of which are still in existence. She's lived in Kansas, Texas, Chicago, Ireland, New York, among other places. She currently divides her time between Baltimore and Berlin. Very cool, Jessa, very cool. I currently have your two astrology books on your website in my cart they're only seven dollars um i did not i think that's really cool that there's some that you're into astrology um not the only one <laughs> so uh yeah let's see this episode is gonna be about that book i'm not a feminist the feminist manifesto um Writer Jessica Crispin rejects today's mainstream neoliberal feminism and calls for a return to feminism's radical promise. As a sharp-edged outsider's social critique, as a challenge to the supremacy of capitalism, and as a path forward to a radically reorganized society. So, you can order Oh, I Am Not a Feminist, a feminist manifesto from Melville House. Alright. Enjoy! is not a feminist. That is not the way... 
this is hell. Our next guest is not a feminist. That is not the way that feminism has been bought, commodified, marketed, branded, and rebranded, so it doesn't even look or sound like feminism anymore. Instead, she offers a manifesto for a real revolution. Here to tell us why she's not a feminist, Jessa Crispin is author of Why I Am Not a Feminist, a Feminist Manifesto. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jessa. Thank you for having me. This is a fantastic book. I really, really appreciate this opportunity to have you on our show. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. How would you define feminism? Because you ask, are you a feminist? Do you believe women are human beings and deserve to be treated as such? That women deserve all the same rights and liberties bestowed upon men? If so, then you are a feminist, or so all the feminists keep insisting. And you call this the simplicity and obviousness of the dictionary definition of feminism. So is feminism... How would you define feminism, and is it the idea that everybody deserves the same rights and liberties? Yeah, it's it's my my version of feminism is that there's no one human life that holds more value than any other, and that's a very kind of um, modern day feminism would say yes, that's exactly what we're saying, except the way that modern feminism behaves itself, uh, the goals of modern-day feminism act in conflict with that. Um, and in, in the way that feminism has been used as an excuse uh, for, say, the invasion of Afghanistan, in the way that contemporary feminism um, is mostly about, uh, you know, entering corporate culture, entering um the corrupt system of government as, as it currently exists, rather than it reforming um, society as a way of uh, a, as a way of valuing all human life, as a way of removing hierarchies of power. You know what? When I was reading your book, I couldn't uh, help but think of that new statue, Fearless Girl, which is in front of the Charging Bull statue <laughs> on Wall Street. There was an opinion piece in The New York Times by Genia Belafonte where she argues that the point of Fearless Girl was to advertise an initiative pushing companies to include more women on their uh, boards. Uh, is the root of this effort, she writes, an organic wish to buoy the ambitions of confident little girls in high tops? Not particularly as the investment firm State Street Global Advisors, which commissioned the statute clearly states in marketing materials, research shows that companies with greater levels of gender diversity have had stronger financial performance and fewer governance-related issues such as bribery, corruption, shareholder uh, battles, and fraud. So do you see uh, good or bad feminism, real or false feminism in the fearless girl statue or somewhere in between? Oh, well, it's obviously a joke. Um why is it why is it a girl? <laughs> why is it not a woman? Um what what what's the symbolic imagery of a little of a little white girl? Um what are the values that we project onto girlhood? Um all of these are worthy conversations, but in, in reality this is an advertisement for for a, corp- a corporate culture. And the idea that women are somehow more uh, nurturing, more empathetic, more compassionate, less corrupt in an inherent way that when if women are bestowed with power, that they will somehow um, express it in a more benevolent way rather than 
engaging in the shenanigans that Wall Street and Silicon Valley and all these sort of very problematic um, industries do that are currently ruled by men. This is this is a myth. It's it's silly. It's beneath us. The idea that a, a small girl tames the wild beast is is absurd. But it's a theme that it's a story that we keep, you know, Beauty and the Beast just came out. It's a it's a Logan has the same storyline. It's a ridiculous thing that we need to really examine. So what does it say to you about the news media then when they put so much focus on that statue during the women's strike? That was, I believe I saw it on every one of the major networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and then the cable news uh, networks as well, MSNBC, Fox, CNBC, CNN. I saw them all on the International Women's Strike Day showing that statue of the fierce girls. So what does that say to you about the way in which the news media uh, it expresses or covers feminism today. It covers it like like children. It, it, it's a very simplistic way of of looking at the world. A very simplistic way of dealing with gender, which is the way that mainstream media has always dealt with women. You know, there's a reason why, up until only you know about ten years ago, the the best role a woman could get in Hollywood was as you know a wife or a mother. Um, or mistress or a prostitute, uh, we don't have a complex conversation around um, women or gender in in general in this country, and particularly in the mainstream media. We are a very uh, sentimental country when it comes to women, and this definitely plays out in these narratives and in the way that women are portrayed in 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 entertainment in in the media in, in these conversations uh we don't like to have a sophisticated conversation about women in May of last year, we spoke with Andy Zeisler, author of We Were Feminists Once, and she talked about this kind of feminism, the kind of feminism that she opposed, which she called pop feminism, feel-good feminism, and white feminism. Andy adds, I call it marketplace feminism. It's decontextualized, it's depoliticized, and it's pr- uh, probably feminist feminism's most popular iteration ever. So is the kind of feminism you oppose, the sellable, as Andy describes it, kind of feminism we see in pop culture, the commodified feminism that is decontextualized? Right. Um, I mean, she ran Bitch Magazine for a long time, which I read when I was, um, you know, in, in college and, and coming out of it. Uh, so she was definitely... Um, she, her projects have always been kind of uh, in alignment with my own. There are different there are different sections of feminism that are um, that the book that my book deals with, and definitely commodified feminism is one of them. Another is lean in corporate culture feminism, um, political feminism. You know the the sort of unquestioned widespread support that Hillary Clinton got in the primaries um, from the kind of feminist leaders from Gloria Steinem in in the second wave to third wave feminists like uh, Jessica Valenti and so on. Um, And then there's outrage feminism, which is much more of an internet phenomenon. So it's uh, mine is a little, my book is a little more scattered than Andy's (laughs) um, I'm afraid, but um, but there are 
different um, subsections of feminism that are that share a kind of uh, a, a problem or a a difficulty in the foundations of, of of contemporary feminism, an idea that they all share, um, which I think is is wrong and and problematic. Uh, you mentioned Hillary Clinton. We did a series of interviews with people who were contributors to Liza Featherstone's uh, book, The Faux Feminism of Hillary Clinton. And so uh, you write that one thing, the patriarchal uh, system under which we live definitely wants you to believe is that you are on your own. Independence and freedom are what you wanted, right? So independent, you swing toward fragility and loneliness. So free, you exist in a blank space with no guideposts or reference points. Feminism can and should be an alternative to this isolation. It should be a way of creating alternatives to the way we live. Now, we're told that when it comes to capitalism, especially the neoliberal brand of capitalism, we're told by Margaret Thatcher that there is no alternative. Recently, Democratic minority leader in Congress, uh, Nancy Pelosi, said in a response to a question at a CNN town hall about having a more stark contrast in economic policies from the right, she said, we're capitalist and that's the way it is. So how much should or how much can feminism be a challenge to the economic system and in terms of economics offer an alternative to the way that we live? Well, feminism needs to start talking about what its values are and how those values differ from the values of the wider culture. And we're uncomfortable with the word values because, I don't know, it's it's somehow vaguely religious or something or or moralistic. People don't People don't like having this conversation of what is it that you actually, what is it that you actually value? Because when you look at contemporary feminism, it has been corrupted by this neoliberal worldview, where what you value, even if you tell yourself, even if you tell yourself that I'm a feminist and so I value community and I value compassion and so on. If you're living your life in this sense of you're only concerned with your own well-being, if your goals in life are simply to improve your own conditions, to make money, to advance yourself into a career in, say, the banking industries or the tech industries, um, or in any sort of corporate culture that is destroying uh, the environment, or using sweatshops in Bangladesh or whatever it is, then you are showing that you, those values are not actually your values. You don't value compassion if that's, if that's the way that you live your life. So, so what... if we do value something other than greed and other than money and power, which is what the, the contemporary society values most of all, then we need to actually start living by those values. And that means not participating in systems of oppression. So in that sense, is the problem with today's feminism that it has adapted to the ethos of neoliberalism, faith in private enterprise, ever-expanding commodification, bootstrap individualism? Is the problem feminism or what neoliberalism has done to feminism? Well, feminism used to be a way of critiquing society. It used to be outside of society as a way of criticizing it in, in a way of progressing it, in, in a way of creating uh, societal structural changes. 
somehow be, when it became um, once women were allowed to participate in society and were not marginalized from it in a wide in a wide scale, uh, once the obstacles to education, uh, money, and so on were removed from the law books, then it beca feminism became about um, not criticizing society so much as 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 a way of seeking greater participation in the society as it already exists. Because it's really easy to criticize corporate culture when you can't make your living in it. it, it if you're outside the walls, then it's very easy to throw rocks at it. Once you're inside, and once you actually have the opportunity to succeed, to also benefit from money and power, it's much more difficult to even want to criticize it. So you tell yourself these, these stories about, well, I know that I'm a good person. So it's okay if I'm working in, in the financial sector uh, because I'm going to improve the financial sector just by virtue of being a good person. Not understanding that that's not how, that's not how reform happens. That's not how structural changes happen. So the neoliberal worldview is, is the world that we're all now living under and participating in. Um, but feminism used to be a way of looking at society rather than um, being just a part of it, being propping it up, uh, helping it to exist. Is today's feminism one that has made concessions, one that is, in a sense, liberal, even too liberal, a feminism that is not contentious but concessionary? Well, feminism today is almost meaningless as, as a word because it's been co-opted by all these different groups in a very um, um, self-congratulatory kind of way and in a unquestioned kind of way. So now you have um, you know, it used to be that mainstream culture were terrified of feminists. You know, religious leaders used to blame hurricanes on feminists and queers. Um, you know, God, feminism made God so angry he had to, you know, blight the earth with a hurricane or an earthquake or something. Um, but now it's, it's a word that's being used by, um, by Hillary Clinton, who is a neoliberal warmonger. It's being used by pop stars like Taylor Swift. It's being used by the pro-lifers now for whatever reason. So the word feminism itself, I don't think, has any meaning anymore. So if I say, you know, that this this thing is this is a feminist idea or I am a feminist or whatever, the the word has been so drained of meaning that whoever hears me say that um, can kind of project any sort of um, any sort of meaning on that word that they that they want to. You know, many people point to Trump's supporters and Republicans as being sexist and feminist. But when I was reading your book, I was thinking about the impact that the Democratic Party has had on feminism. What? Ha how much damage do you think the Democratic Party has done to feminism? I don't think. Um... I don't think that it's any, anybody's 
any particular group's <laughs> fault. I mean, when we talk about, you know, we, when we talk about Trump and we talk about um, how Trump is against women and the fact that Trump was elected uh, says something about the misogyny in this country. In order to have that conversation, we need to forget that 29 million women voted for Donald Trump. Um, so are we going to say that these women are are misogynistic in some way? No, it's... It, it, Many of those women claimed to be feminists as they were voting for Donald Trump, said that voting for Donald Trump was somehow a feminist act. And as far as the Democrats go, um, this is a, a situation where the Democrats use um, abortion and pro-choice words, the language, but they don't actually back it up with any action. So they use it to kind of rally the base. But then they constantly disappoint because as as they're sort of saying, well, I'm pro-choice and we'll protect Roe v. Wade from being overturned. You know, as they say that clinics after clinic is closing across America, there are states that only have one abortion clinic left. And I think that this is a big problem with contemporary feminist rhetoric is that it isn't connected to the everyday reality of what it's like to be a woman in this country. So contemporary feminist rhetoric is, is deals with issues of self-empowerment, lip service to sort of pro-choice things and, and what's good for women, like the, you know, the closing the wage gap and so on. But how women actually live their lives and what's actually going to improve their lives has, is not part of the conversation at all. You write that radical change is scary, it's terrifying, actually, and the feminism I support is a full-on revolution. Last week when we spoke with uh, the author and columnist Judith Levine, who in a recent article quoted the late uh, art, uh, late radical public intellectual Ellen Willis writing in 2005, for, the, for most of my politically conscious life, the idea of social transformation has been the great taboo of American politics. How much do you think the real goals of feminism, say the goals of the women's strikes, such such as equal pay, paid parental and medical leave, universal uh, child care, universal health care, freedom from sexual abuse, deportation, racism, and violence. How much do you think those are taboo in U.S. politics? Is the social and political transformations at the heart of real feminism, feminism that you would support simply too scary for Americans? Right. I don't understand how after the failure yesterday of uh, the Republican health care bill, how the conversation did not immediately switch to single payer. I don't, I feel like the left in America, uh, as it is a, um, a philosophy or political viewpoint, is much more radical than the politicians that are currently in power with the Democrats. You know, the Obviously, they're very centrist. Obviously, they're very uh, conservative and ineffectual, or we wouldn't be living in the world that we live in. Um, and while the right has taken up the sort of extreme position, um, the Democrats have decided to counter that with, with taking a very centrist, reasonable, um, totally in a, unable to actually accomplish anything position. Um so, yeah, the, the things that actually would improve the lives of women are somehow 
um, not part of the conversation at all. And that includes health care reform, subsidized child care. And these things aren't even part of the mainstream feminist conversation anymore because the mainstream feminist conversation is about your, you know, fat acceptance and whether or not Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a feminist television show. You know, I read how many think pieces about that this week um, <laughs> that has been off the air for God knows how long. And I've read at least three think pieces this week alone about Buffy the Vampire Slayer is the most feminist thing that's ever happened. It's like, no, that's, that's, that's not actually how grown-ups think about politics and feminism. We are speaking with Jessica Crispin. She is author of Why I Am Not a Feminist, a Feminist Manifesto. Manifesto. Jessa is the editor and founder of the online magazine's Book Slut, one of America's very first uh, book blogs, and the literary journal Spolia. How much has feminism then diverted from the path of something we discussed last week with historian Marjorie Spruill about her uh, book, uh, Divided We... Uh, Divided We Stand, that is the 1977 International Women's Year Conference where they devised a plan of action that included ending discrimination in education and employment, opening up new opportunities to women in every field, including elective and a point of office, urge greater participation and recognition of women in the media, and an end to sex role stereotyping both in the media and in schools and a host of other demands. How much has feminism diverted from where it was in 1977 at that International Women's Year Conference? Well, to me, that's not the important part of second wave feminism. That, to me, is very much in line with how we look at whether or not feminism is succeeding today. You know, when, when people do these sort of tallies of how, how is feminist, feminism doing, well, we look at how many women are, uh, the percentage of women that are CEOs of companies the percentage of women um, in the Senate, the percentage of women um, in in medical school or whatever. That is about participating in a society that is sick, that is uh, structured around oppression and exploitation. So that, to me, is not interesting. I'm more, much more interested in the radical thinkers of the second wave of uh, Shulamith Firestone, Bell Hooks, Audre Lorde, um, Andrea Dworkin, these sorts of people who understood that the foundations of society are in oppression, that our society doesn't function without somebody being powerless and somebody being the powerful, and that we're just going to keep... So even if women somehow gain power, there's still going to be some demographic that is the powerless. The demographic is going to be exploited and oppressed because that's how our society functions. And so the only way to create true equality, not just for women, but for everyone, is to found our society in some other idea, in, into some other structure. So that, to me, is much more interesting and much more necessary than just sort of putting more women on the board of Facebook. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is, uh, what does it say about the way in which 
feminism is seen today or when people say, you know, women are rising in power and they point to Margaret Thatcher, Hillary Clinton, Angela Merkel, Theresa May, Marine Le Pen. What does that what should that reveal to us about the way in which feminism is branded or the way in which it's defined today? Right. Uh, true equality will will never be achieved until it's a woman who drags us into a into a nuclear holocaust, right? I mean, it, it's this idea <laughs> that that women, uh, the powerful woman, um, of, of true equality, and this idea that all we need is to get women in in a position of power and everything, and everything will suddenly magically be fine. It's such a fairy tale, and it, and it's such a it's based on this idea that women are somehow more compassionate than men, but that is a lie that men told us in order to keep us at home taking care of the children. You know, you're so much better at it. You're more nurturing. You're more emotional. You know, you do that stuff, and I'll do the the, the hard work. You know, you you'd be bored by it. You know, stay with the kids. So we've bought into this lie because it's convenient for us now. It used to be inconvenient. Now we have it working for us instead because now we don't have to question our motives because our motives are so obviously pure. Um, How could they possibly be anything but? So this is a ridiculous lie, and we need to actually start thinking about these things, which is why the promotion of Hillary Clinton as the feminist candidate was baffling to me. Like, if you you actually... Just dismiss her gender and look at her record. She was terrible for women. Um, and the fact that you couldn't have that conversation during the primary season without being branded a traitor was absurd to me. I'm glad you mentioned that because you have you write that. Uh, let me get to this question. I have it right here. Uh, you write that uh, feminism is a method of shaming and silencing anyone who disagrees with you, inspired by a naive belief that disagreement of conflict is abuse. So I just want you to expand on that. How does feminism shame and silence those who may disagree with you? Well, there's there there's outrage culture, which is this idea. Uh, this phenomenon that happens mostly online, but uh, it happens in, in the real world too, where um, if you profess an unpopular opinion, if you use the wrong language, um, in, the, in the case of uh, Tim Hunt, Professor Tim Hunt, if you make a bad joke uh, that can be taken out of context, you lose your job. Um, in the case of, and Laura Kipnis has a, a book about this that's coming out next month uh, called Unwanted Advances about um, Title IX tribunals on college campuses. You know, she wrote an essay in a non-university publication, and she's a professor at Northwestern University, and she was brought up on hostile, creating a hostile uh, environment um, of a sexual nature and brought up on these sort of um, Title IX charges by her, by some students, not even her students, but just other students um, on the university campus and almost lost her job because of it. And professors have lost their jobs because of these kinds of things. So, and it's done under the name of feminism. The, women, the girls and women that were protesting against Laura Kipnis were uh, part of the feminist organization on campus. 
and you you know you've seen throughout the years um women like Jermaine Greer have been uninvited from um to speak on college campuses because her some of her language when she talks about trans issues have not been the words that are the preferred words at the moment. They're not the preferred opinions at the moment. Um, you see it happening right now with the Dave Chappelle comedy special. People are, are boycotting Netflix because they objected to a joke or two in, in the Dave Chappelle um, comedy special about, uh, about gays. And so it's this idea that if somebody has a different opinion than we do, that they need to feel consequences for that. They need to be fired. They need to lose their job. They need to be publicly humiliated. And it's not a conversation. It's a condemnation. So how much is today's feminism about avoiding arguments or deep discussions about the fight for equal rights for women or the acknowledgement of the lack of equal rights for women? Uh, How much is it about not feeling uncomfortable? Oh, it's almost entirely about not feeling uncomfortable. That's, that's why a contemporary feminism is so focused on the self, on uh, individual achievement, on improving your own conditions, on pursuing your own goals, using the language of self-empowerment, and, um, which, by the way, is an 80s term that Reagan and Thatcherites used as a justification for taking away social welfare programs, that we need to make sure that people can be self-empowered and not rely on state welfare programs. Um, somehow we've, we've taken this as, as a good thing rather than understanding that it's about removing any sort of feelings of solidarity between gender or class. Um, but yeah, it, it's a, when you focus so much on your own pursuits, on your own self, when you don't use feminism as a way of interrogating the culture that you live in, and interrogating the way that you participate in that culture, then it just becomes this kind of feel-good mantra of, you know, everything you do is great because you're a feminist and it's super important for women for you to, you know, drink that smoothie and buy that T-shirt, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, it, people don't like it when you question their choices anymore because it, it's not about... Um, it's not about which smoothie do you like. It's somehow that smoothie becomes an integral part of your identity. And so if you question that choice, you are questioning, questioning the legitimacy of your entire existence somehow, which is a bad road to go down. It's a, it's a silly way to start thinking. So to what degree can you consumer boycott or support businesses or sign petitions or vote in elections to change the world in the one that truly believes in, embraces, and actually implements equal rights for women? Well, I think you have to live your life with integrity, and you have to figure out what, you're, what, what you value and then live your life in alignment with those values. And it is as simple and as blindingly complex as that. Um, because that's not a conversation that is encouraged, I think that 
um, we look at it on this very kind of surface level way of, you know, uh, should I get that pedicure? Is, what lifestyle choices should I make? That sort of stuff. Um, until you get down at the real root of your of your life and of your society and of your culture and your community and your family and all that stuff, like right down to the base of it, and you understand what it's rooted in and try to change that, then the surface level stuff doesn't, doesn't necessarily make a big difference. You know, I, I've been on this book tour in Australia trying to talk about these issues and people would come to me with questions like, is it okay that I like the movie Love Actually? And I was like, I don't think you're, <laughs> I think it's deeper than that question. I think it's deeper than, you know, well, what do I say to my boss if, you know, if, if he's sort of, you know, trying to keep me from getting a raise or whatever. It's like, this this is the wrong way to look at this situation. It, you have to look at the, the base motivations, not at just the, the, the symptoms, um, the sort of visible symptoms that are manifesting. So I, there was an article uh, by past guest on our show, Katha Powlett, at The Nation last week, headlined, Can a Feminist Be Pro-Life? Katha wrote the article in a response to, as she writes, in January, New Wave Feminists, an anti-choice organization, was briefly listed as a sponsor on the website for the Women's March on Washington. Katha cites Lauren Enriquez, a PR manager with the Anti-Choice Human Coalition, writing in a New York Times op-ed headlined, How the New Feminist Res- Resistance leaves out American women, that the movement's radical position on abortion cannot unite American women. Katha writes that a, a, women's, a woman's constitutional right to decide for themselves when and if to become a mother is an essential part of feminism today. In your opinion, how much are abortion rights and a pro-choice stance at the very core of feminism? Without abortion rights, what is feminism? And do you see a trajectory in feminism that could lead to a feminism that is actually embracing of an anti-choice opinion. Well, look, I think it's I think it's absolutely possible to be a feminist and to be philosophically and morally pro-choice or pro-life. I, I believe that you can um, believe that um, women hold as much value as men philosophically and also believe that abortion is a death. Once you start legislating that for other women, that is fundamentally not feminist because you are trying to control the lives and the choices and the belief system of other women. And that that's patriarchal. That's, there's no way to get around that. But that's a patriarchal um, method of control. So can somebody be pro-life and be feminist? Yes. Can they advocate for the end of abortion and be feminist? No, absolutely not. I think that abortion rights are overemphasized in the feminist conversation in the way that um, politicians use it as this issue to rally the base, but then don't actually do anything to improve access uh, to to abortion services or family planning services. They, they don't necessarily do anything um, to make it more affordable to women. Um, so 
I think that it takes up a lot of space in the conversation, but doesn't take up a lot of space in the world. You know, I, I used to work at Planned Parenthood in Texas. Texas is a huge state. There are only a couple abortion providers in the state. Women often had to drive for hours to get abortions. Um, and then when, you know, when they got to the clinic, they were told there's a 24 or 36-hour waiting period after uh, meeting with the doctor. And so then they have to spend even more money to get a motel for the night or whatever. Like, it was a nightmare. But that was never part of the conversation. The, the conversation, the pro-choice conversation um, across the country was just, you know, well, we're not going to overturn. We're going to protect Roe v. Wade. Like, Roe v. Wade does not mean anything if women can't actually get abortions. So there's a huge disconnect between rhetoric and lived experience. And I think that people use abortion as a, um, as a litmus test, as a, as a kind of shibboleth, as, as these sort of rallying issues that, um, that don't back it up as actual real action. Well, let's talk about an aspect of the discussion that isn't happening, and you point out in your book that I find fascinating. You write, we need to define what it is we value, how we express that value, and what we ask society to value in us. Money is currently how we express value, particularly through our unconscious association between income and worth, as in if someone is financially struggling, they must not be producing anything of value. If someone is financially successful, they must be producing work of tremendous value. But also, if I am not being paid for my work, that work must not be valuable. How much do monetary, does monetary value undermine our values? How much does money undermine our principles, our standards of behavior, our judgment of what is important in life and what is right and wrong? Oh, 100%. <laughs> um, money is nothing except a corrupting force, right? It's, it's just... Um... You know, the, in the past sort of a uh, couple years, I've been very interested in the women of the Catholic Church in, in the sense of the saints. Um, because 500 years ago, St. Teresa of Avila was writing about money, about how do we create a society that is not centered around money? How do we, uh, how do we, value a life through something other than the than expressing it with money um and so it's fascinating and and also completely disheartening to think that we've been dealing with this um it through uh through a women's philosophy for 500 years and, and we're still in the place that we are but the idea that i keep coming back to with the church and I'm not, I'm not Catholic. I'm not even Christian. Um, but the thing that I think that I find so appealing was this idea in the, in the, in early Christianity, that if you became a member of the church, you gave up your property, right? Um, you, uh, you gave your, you bestowed your land and your money to the church. And the reason why you did that was because owning property meant that you had people subject to your will. And so you were um, uh, relinquishing that power that you, that you held over others. And that that was the first step 
to being a true Christian. Now, obviously, the church took that property and ran with it, um, but the idea of that still has so much hold on my imagination of what that means. And I, you know, I, (laughs) as a writer, you're told a lot of stuff about how to make money, about how to brand yourself, about how to, um, you know, create this kind of financial foundation for yourself. Um, But part of that is by giving up your ideals and compromising on your values and writing stuff that you don't believe in and, and so on and so forth in order to get published. And I absolutely refuse to do that, which means I don't have any money. Um, but I'm, I'm fine with that because St. Teresa and I can have a nice chat and a bottle of wine about it, you know. Uh, as you can imagine, I am very much in the same financial state as you are with a radio show that has content like this. It doesn't really help. You really don't get a lot of corporate sponsorship when you're being very critical of capitalism and pointing out its flaws. Jessa, one last question for you. Jessa Crispin is author of Why I Am Not a Feminist, a Feminist Manifesto that I think everybody should be reading out there. Jessa is the editor and founder of the online magazine's Book Slut, which was one of America's very first book blogs, and the literary journal Spolia. How, uh, the last question that we have for all of our guests is the question from hell. We, uh, it's the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. How <laughs> anathema to what you see as good feminism, I guess, uh, and how, uh, chal- how much damage was done to feminism by the idea and the branding and use of girl power? Well, it's the Buffy thing, right? It's the Buffy the Vampire Slayer thing. Um, that that kind of idea overtook feminism somehow, um, of being strong, being empowered, that sort of thing. And it, and it feels good. You know, it feels good to have power. It feels good to be strong. It feels good to um, profit off of our society it feels good to make money etc cetera, etc cetera. but those are the standards of success from patriarchal culture the patriarchy values you for the money that you make for the power that you wield um and so feminism should have been the opposite of that of let's not judge how well we're doing based on how much money we're making but how much care we put into the world, how much compassion we are capable of developing. Um, so to me, the girl power thing, the, the, the Barbie doll version of feminism, the very pretty corporate version of feminism, that's not feminism. That's patriarchy. It's the same thing just now with a skirt on it. And we have to kind of understand that in order to be able to reject it and create something new and better. Yeah, I was just about to say that I was wondering how much is today's feminism about the worst aspects of the patriarchy, the worst aspects of men. Is that what today's feminism is really all about? Yeah, it's women behaving like men. Women um, having the same goals as men and and having the same sort of... um, definitions of what a good life is as men but i feel like 
how low are our standards? You know, we should we should aspire to be a little bit better because we should understand intimately what it means to be on the other side of somebody uh, who operates in that way. Jessa, I cannot thank you enough for being on this week's show. This is a fantastic book. Jessa Crispin is author of Why I Am Not a Feminist, a Feminist Manifesto. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. Thank you. You were just listening to a 2017 interview between Chuck Mertz and Jessica Crispin. Sorry, I keep doing that. Jessa Crispin, who is a writer. And yeah, if you go to our website, you can find that, uh, that interview. And I like it because, you know, they started out talking about the statue of the little girl in front of the bull statue on Wall Street. And, you know, I guess it was new at the time in 2017. I don't even know if it's still there. I don't know. But I just know that I've always thought that statue was incredibly stupid. Like, I don't know what metaphor they're going for because clearly that bull would kill that little girl so fast, you know, if they weren't made out of metal. So, I don't know. I guess that's the thing. I don't, it's not really an art piece. It's just an advertisement for Wall Street and it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Well, I guess it does. Yeah, like, the little girl doesn't stand a chance. Anyways, um... I really like that interview, and I think that Jessa touched on something near the end about Roe v. Wade that's really relevant, and uh, and maybe you know I'm gonna get back, I'm I'm about to get to the question of how question from how which is what's currently distracting you from class war, and I mean maybe it's this now Roe versus Wade, like because that's the thing is Roe Roe v. Wade is a federal protection um, to keep safe abortion legal, but that that may provide reproductive rights to women, but as Jessa explained, in Texas, in these states where there aren't any abortion facilities, there are all these hoops people still have to jump through that keep them from even, from they might have the rights, but they can't assess their rights, and so that's an issue of reproductive justice, which is still not solved by Roe v. Wade. And there's just so much stigma around talking about abortion. I'm just sitting here thinking, like, in that vast, great state of Texas, I wonder what plants are growing that might block progesterone um, in the uterus. So, anyways, that's why I'm into plants, because they're accessible, unlike any substance that you have to get through, uh, you know, the mainstream medical field. But... Anyways, let's get to the question from him. I'm going to read our most recent Facebook responses. Uh, yesterday we had Sebe- or, sorry, Dan left off with social anxiety. What is distracting you from class war? And let me find social anxiety. So, our next response from Adam A. is class dick measuring. Alright. Aaron D. says those crazy antics of Madison Cawthorn and his special assistant. I have no idea what that's referring to. 
Uh, Samuel V says, apparently the culture war. We'd rather fight over race, gender, sexuality, political ideology, than who gets to disembowel an oligarch. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what they call the uh, oppression Olympics or something. I don't know. Fabio AJ says, bread and circus. I think bread is distracting a lot of people from class war. <laughs> circus. I've never been to one. Scott J says, fading charisma and real politic. David S, let me reread our question here, is what's distracting you from class war? David S is too busy gorging on government cheese. Oh, there's plenty of it, David. Somebody's got to eat it. Otherwise, this just goes, you know, I'd say compost it, but I don't even know if that's good for your soil. <laughs> Okay, I mean, also you're not supposed to comp- most- Unless it's like industrial compost, you're not really supposed to compost dairy, so they say. Back to the responses. Laddie S.O. Laddie Scott O. says, macro dosing. <laughs> I like that response. Um, and is it- I would ask though, like, is it really distracting you? Like, I feel like a macro do- dose might just like open your eyes to- class inequality but that's just me okay scott j says the american people have a far greater appetite for nachos and nascar than for actually changing things so i guess scott j's response there is nachos and nascar <laughs> um and then angela m says finding just the right pike We've got a couple of people here who thought that was funny. I personally had to Google, what is a pike? And, and then I thought it was pretty funny. And then, all right, our last Facebook response, and then I will leave the rest for Sebastian to read tomorrow on Twitter, is from Neil C. What's distracting you from class war, Neil C? My love for money. So I guess we know which side Neil C is on. Uh, the rest of you, um, gotta keep an eye out for him. All right, well, that's all the responses I'm gonna read on for this week's question from hell. That leaves tomorrow's interview played by Sebastian. I'm not exactly sure that what that is yet, um, but Sebastian will also be doing a segment called Sebastian Soapbox because Jeff Dorshan will unfortunately not be uh, doing a moment of truth this week. But one more reminder, for mark your calendars for Friday, May 6th. That's two days from now. Because Chuck Mertz is going to be doing a Patreon podcast. So, if you've been anticipating Chuck's return, now is the time. And now is the time also to press this closing audio clip. So, I hope you guys have a good day. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>